The Wall Street Journal once called George Will perhaps the most powerful journalist in America. His Pulitzer Prize-winning column is seen in more than 400 newspapers across the country. This week, he joins Amanda Carpenter of The Bulwark to reflect on what he calls the unruly torrent years between 2008 and 2020. Most people say, gee, how do you come up with things to write about? That's the most commonly asked questions of a columnist. And it's the question I, when I began as a columnist, asked my friend Bill Buckley. Yeah. I said, how do you come up with things to write about? He said, the world irritates me three times a week. <laughs> well, I'd say the world irritates me, amuses me, piques my curiosity. The world is just littered with things to write about. More with columnist and commentator George Will in a moment. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, George, it is such a privilege to sit down with you for an whole hour to talk about your book. And really the first thing I want to ask is... How do you approach your role as a writer, in particular, a political writer? First thing a political writer ought to be aware of is that politics is not a big part of most people's lives and shouldn't be a big part of the life of a healthy society. So that if I don't write a score of columns of my hundred columns a year on books and another score on cultural matters, I'm not doing my job. Uh, Politically, the country is obsessed with the presidency. Mm-hmm. There's the presidency and then everything else. Although he's the head of one of our three branches of one of our many governments, whose job, as outlined in Article 2, is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, which makes him definitionally secondary to those who make the laws in Article 1, Congress. But we, we have this swollen presidency that tends to absorb all the energies of the country and a lot of the space and ink of journalists. So the the first task of a political columnist is to say, I'm not really a political columnist. Mm. I'm that and a lot of other things. Yeah, it seems to me what has always stood out about you, you just as a younger person coming up, is that I see so often the temptation for political writers to score points rather than make points. But you... And maybe it's because you choose to focus on the people who don't pay attention to politics, that you can take a broader focus back. Um, But do you think people should focus more on being observers or perhaps advocates? Because there's always a purpose to what you are doing when you sit down. Yeah, they ought to be observers first. They ought to understand what's going on in the country before they make judgments about it. And they ought to do what I try to do in each column, I bear in mind that the episode, cultural, judicial, legislative, political, that occasions the column, will recede, but there's a principle involved or I wouldn't write about it. Mm-hmm. When I try to find the nugget of, of larger principle, constitutional, legal, moral, that will remain. And to focus on that it makes politics richer and more nourishing. Mm. Um. I was going through this, which is a collection of, you know, so many of your writers. And I, I, I remembered that you called Bill Buckley the most consequential writer of the 20th century. 
Um, those consequential journalists. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Yeah, you, right. you would remember your columns better than I would well, have done. Well, I think and others. Yeah. Um, but, but, of course, you know, he had a purpose, you know, with the National Review and the things that he was doing, advocating for. Um, what made him, why did you call him the most consequential? Because before Ronald Reagan, there was Barry Goldwater to capture the Republican Party for conservatism. Before there was Barry Goldwater, there was National Review that made the Goldwater nomination in 1964 possible. And before there was National Review, there was a spark in the mind of a young Yale graduate named Bill Buckley. Therefore... Bill Buckley won the Cold War. That's, that's sort of the, <laughs> That's quite, that's the, consequential. That's sort of the, the <laughs> compressed version, yes, that uh, ideas have consequences. Bill made conservative ideas accessible and fun. Mm. He brought in a land and a spirit and a cheerfulness uh, to the business of political argument, much missed these days. Yeah. How important is the fun? Terrific. Yeah. When Barry Goldwater, for whom I cast my first presidential vote in 1964, when he first went into politics, I think he was running for the city council of Phoenix in 1948. Okay. He wrote a letter to his brother and said of politics, it ain't for life and it might be fun. <laughs> it turned out to be pretty much for life for him, but it certainly was fun. If it isn't fun, do something else. Yeah. How do you keep it fun? Uh, first of all, writing about it is fun. Of course, I... I love to write. I'm a, I'm a compulsive writer. I can't stop. Uh, I write 100 columns a year, and I'm always writing books in the, in the midst. But I happen to like politics. I like a lot of politicians. I dislike some of them, and I dislike some of their attributes. But I admire the business. We have to have politics. Uh, we have to have government. We have to have laws. Therefore, we have to have argument. The whole culture of democracy is at bottom a culture of persuasion. Mm-hmm. And uh, argument is fun. Yeah. If you don't like argument, you pick the wrong country because we argue about everything. It's the way it ought to be. And there's a big difference between making argument and fighting, um, which I think a lot of people are tempted to do now um, because you know social media and things like that explicitly rewards it. They call it engagement. Um, but But how do you... How do you always stay focused on making the argument in a fun way? Because politics, you can get very invested into it. The stakes are very high these days, as you well know. Um, So how do you stay detached enough um, that it is fun and you can have the happy warrior attitude when you sit down at that computer every day? Well, first you bear in mind that what seems earth-shaking today is not really shaking the earth. Mm. I I recently turned 80, and one of the nice things looking for the second nice thing, but the first nice thing about, <laughs> about turning 80 is you look back and you say, what was it that happened in the Carter administration that had me so excited? Yeah. Why was I so exercised about something Gerald Ford did? I can't remember. And that's chastening in a way, but it also makes you take a deep breath. Mm. One of the things that I admire, and I think so many other people do about your writing, is that you you have a happy attitude, but you're not afraid to confront very complex problems. And um, as I was flipping through the book, I, was, I noticed that you write about the lynchings in American history quite often. And I think there's a complicated debate unfolding now, especially in conservative circles, about you know, cr- things like critical race theory, um, which is not talking about history yeah. of lynchings, but that gets muddled and confused. But you've confronted this, and the one I remember is um, where you told a story about a lynching that happened in Illinois, not far 
from where uh, President Obama uh, announced his campaign. Yeah. And so can you talk about why? Because, you know, as a conservative that growing up, grew up in rural Michigan, I simply was not taught these things. And sometimes it's being exposed to your columns was the first time I even heard it. I lived 80 years before learning this year about the Tulsa riots. Now, it was actually the Tulsa pogrom. That's what we call that when that stuff happened in Europe, and we should have called it that here. Mm. I'd heard vaguely there was unpleasantness in Tulsa, but knew nothing about it, and I should have. Conservatives sometimes flinch from confronting the disagreeable facets of American history because... The disagreeable facets are presented by some progressives as definitional mm. and typical. And it requires a kind of mental equilibrium to confront these things and put them in context. This is why we're having so much of a fight about the New York Times mm -hmm. egregious 1619 project, the fundamental assertion of which is that America's real founding wasn't Fourth of July, 1776. It was 1619 when the first slaves arrived. And what made this reframing, as the New York Times says, of American history so pernicious is the crux of the matter was, according to them, that the American Revolution was fought to preserve slavery, that it was fought because Lord Dunsmore had said that uh, uh, blacks who escaped slavery and fought on the side of the British in the American Revolution would be emancipated. Mm. Well, this is just flat out historically illiterate. I think he said that in November 1775, after Lexington and Concord, after the Boston Tea Party, after the Stamp Act, after the Boston Massacre, after George Washington was made head of the Revolutionary Army. So just... It doesn't square. It's mm -hmm. just illiterate. And, it, and it, it's so bad, it's, it's obviously meretricious. But do you think there's a reason that people want to start the conversation? Because there is this blind, stop with, blind spot with American history where people don't know. And so when maybe someone comes up with the 1619 Project that is riddled with problems, um, maybe it's the first time someone's heard it and say we should give it a chance. So who, who's at fault for hiding this part of American history from us because it did so clearly happen. It isn't taught. And why is that? I don't think so much hiding suggests that they're doing it on purpose. A lot of people just don't know. Mm -hmm. And the way we teach history, when we teach history, uh, is probably cursory and unserious. Yeah. The reason we're arguing about it is that it matters. You know, in 1984, Orwell said, he who controls the past controls the future and he who controls the present controls the past. So when we're arguing about the past, we're really arguing about the trajectory of the nation. Mm -hmm. We're arguing about the future. And one of the really interesting points that I had never considered before when it comes to this, um, what do we know about American history and what we don't, has to do with um, another lynching that you wrote about in a column, America's Last Mass Lynching. And you raised the point that our government did have knowledge and documents about this, but they were all, they were classified. And you wrote, most regulations tell us what we cannot do. Secrecy tells us what we cannot know. And there, there was a role for government in this and not necessarily making these things public. That's right. That, that uh, formulation comes from the man who was my best friend, Pat Moynihan. And Pat made the point that 
secrets are government property, and governments tend to hoard them uh, and become acquisitive about property and uh, the property and secrets. And secrets make us necessarily more unnecessarily ignorant. Hmm. And this had to do, I believe, with grand jury uh, testimony from 60 or 70 years ago, for Pete's sake. What is the point of keeping this secret? Yeah, and so um, Eric Holder disclosed those documents, and you ended it with saying, when is a cold case that should be but is not part of our national memory too cold to learn more about? The correct answer is never. So it seems to me you are arguing we should not shy away from this. And do you think conservatives in particular should take more of an interest in this complex racial history we have rather than perhaps fighting about CRT? Because it seems to me like this is a more well-formulated argument that tells us why we do need to know rather than fighting about what other people have presented that's wrong. I think conservatives should pay attention to the lynchings, to the, uh, uh, as I said, the pogrom in Tulsa and other matters because it gives conservatives a chance to make the truthful case of astonishing progress since then. Mm. I sometimes see... The people who say the 1619 was everything because it set the course of the country, say things really haven't gotten all that better, and the illusion that they're better is itself a sign of systemic racism and all that stuff. To which I say, go to an SEC football game, Mississippi playing Alabama, and the head referee is an African-American these days often, Mm -hmm. and he's bossing everyone around and penalizing them. And SEC football is as close as we come to an established religion in this country. Yeah. Although, do you think the athletes should be paid? <laughs> I do. No? Yes. I do. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're generating billions. Give them a pittance. I know. For it's pizza. the best decision I've seen from Brett Kavanaugh so far. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, uh, the, it, it, it turns into a, a great deserved affirmation of America to understand how bad things were and how much better they are today. Mm. And so do you think that discussion is furthered or hindered um, when athletes decide to take the knee? It's their business. Yeah. You don't think it's something the president should perhaps weigh in about? And <laughs> <laughs> I think 95% of what presidents talk about they shouldn't talk about. Oh, Michael yeah? Jackson dies and a president has to become mourner-in-chief. Where is that in Article 2? <laughs> I mean... That's what the, the British have the House of Windsor to do those things. They separate head of state from head of government. And we don't. And therefore, the ceremonial accretions gather around the, the office of the presidency and make it all the more cloying and omnipresent and swollen. So why, why do you think we're so obsessed with the presidency? Is it just the easiest thing to talk about? It's the easiest thing to talk about. It's vivid. Modern technology helps. First radio uh, which I think, when we get a little more distance, people say radio was actually a more fundamentally revolutionary change than television, hmm. because radio gave it, it was crucial to the Nazi Party. Hmm. One of the first things they did, and that Goebbels did, when he got in, was make radios cheap, so everyone could have a radio. So we could talk to them. And uh, uh, radio gave the bully pulpit resonance. When Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, sat down to give his first fireside chat, he began with two words that do not appear in the text. They were my friends. Now, 
Try to imagine George Washington saying, my friends, it's unthinkable, or Calvin Coolidge, to think another of my heroes. He'd have to talk the, to someone first. Yeah. But Roosevelt understood the modern presidency. In fact, he pioneered it more than anyone else. He was going to create a new intimacy with the country. Now, I don't think we want to be intimate with presidents. I'd rather not. Exactly. <laughs> uh, they are the head of one branch of one of our many governments. Mm-hmm. So who's been the most ide- ideal president, in your view? Who, who did it right, or at least came close to it? Well, the, the Because two- Ronald Reagan was famous for communicating with the public, and most conservatives would look up to, you know, the ghost of Reagan there's and say, wrong bring with, him back. There, yeah, there's nothing wrong with communicating with the sure. public. It is wrong to say that the president should be front and center all the time, communicating all the time. When mm-hmm. Senator Bennett of Colorado was making his brief run for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. He tweeted, uh, vote for me and you'll get a president you won't have to think about for weeks at a time. I was for him. (laughs) So do you think, you know, we talked about the, you mentioned the advent of radio, but certainly social media has changed the game for all campaigns, um, not just the presidency and how they communicate. And how, how have you witnessed that change because it hasn't only changed you know how the candidates communicate but how people receive information and react to it and what the expectation is and how they talk to one another yes and abuse one another yes well i have never tweeted i don't know how to tweet congratulations if i had to find a tweet (laughs) i wouldn't know how to be fair about twice a week a member of my staff tweets out, what is it, 240 characters? Yes, I believe so. Okay, uh, from my columns. That's it. Okay. I'm told I have a Facebook page. I've never seen it. I'm just not interested. I don't get the point. Uh, I've always thought that the quantity of stupidity relative to the size of the population was fairly constant over time. I'm no longer so sure <laughs> But it just may be that the social media gives such a velocity mm-hmm. to intemperateness and vituperation. I do think that it elicits it. Mm. Once upon a time, and here I want to credit Jean, uh, Eugene Volokh, who runs the Volokh Conspiracy website, wonderful uh, place, uh, talks about jurisprudential issues. He teaches constitutional law, particularly First Amendment law at UCLA. He has a a fascinating article out on uh, cheap speech, what it's done to us. used to be to communicate with a lot of people. You either had to own a radio station or a television station or printing presses and print and all that stuff, distribution. Now, cheap doesn't describe it. It's inexpensive beyond measure. It's it's free. Anyone can say anything to anyone. Well... That's so democratic, so it makes Freedom us feel of speech. Good. I mean, yeah. as conservatives, it seems a natural inclination that, right. that this would lead to a net good. However, however, there's a downside to everything, including this. And the downside is this. The much-abused mainstream media had gatekeepers. They had responsibilities. They had vulnerabilities. They had to keep to take newspapers, their subscribers happy, their advertisers happy, the community, they they had a reputation to uphold. And therefore, 
they stood between the public and stark raving mad lunatics with crazy <laughs> theories who now can just get them out there. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a cost to everything. But how do you think that plays into the ongoing debate about cancel culture uh, that's happening? I mean, as you know, on the right side of the aisle, there is a raging debate over the role of super, uh, social media and moderation and what rights people should have should expect when they go on these platforms to say whatever they want. So how do you balance the the abuse and the idea that we all support freedom of speech and that you counter bad speech with more speech, um, which I believe in, but yeah. I think my belief has wavered just a little bit when it comes to these issues. I'm still a Section 230 absolutist. Section 230 is a provision in the law that says that the face, Facebook or these or these other social media platforms are not publishers. They cannot be sued. They, are, mm-hmm. they enable people to be uh, out there, but they're not liable. And I think I'm for that. Uh, these are private corporations. They are tremendously important to the public square nowadays, but they are also not forever. There's such a thing as monopoly fatalism. People say that uh, these are big, therefore they're forever and are unchallengeable. I could exhaust you and the hour here <laughs> with all the unchallengeable monopolies that are gone. Remember the A&PT company, Atlantic and Pacific Grocery Stores? In 1935, there's something like 15,000 of them in the country, one for every 9,000 Americans. When's the last time you heard of one? No. I've in, never been in one. In 2007, the cover of Forbes magazine said... Can anyone challenge the cell phone giant? Talking about Apple? No, they're talking about Nokia. Five months before that cover came out, the iPhone came out. And another unassailable monopoly was about to be assailed. So I I think that we can uh, rest assured that nothing is immortal, including these giants today. Sure, yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, Twitter and Facebook... They are being challenged, but uh, usually from the right by these startups like Parler and Gab, where they explicitly say, you can come here and say whatever you want. And then we have like these weird things that happen where President Trump is kicked off Twitter, but the Taliban can put their messages on it. And so it seems to me that we're almost in this vortex where no one wants to attempt any responsibility. And then you see these big giants like Mark Zuckerberg go to Congress and say, well, just regulate me. Please solve this problem for me. And it's a nut nobody can crack. There's a serious argument that, and I'm not sure I accept it yet, but it's a quite serious argument, that uh, these should be treated as common carriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you open your doors, anyone can come through. If you open your doors to the public, let the public in entirely. Mm-hmm. Now, this has lots of wrinkles like a Colorado Baker. Yeah opens his doors, but didn't want to serve some people. So, there's lots to argue about again. But basically, I'm, a, I'm a, a, an absolutist. Yeah, but it's, it's okay to not have your mind made up as we grapple with it and hear out the arguments. Absolutely. Um, I want to turn to a completely different subject, but has a lot of applicability today. Um, another hard subject and, um, that has to do with how you've approached the abortion debate, which you had a wonderful way of talking about the heartbeat bills, in which you called it a wholesome provocation. And 
attempting to have a debate about viability versus trimester. And I just, I want to explore your thinking behind that and how it was received um, as well. Trimesters and viability. Did you ever think, what would American constitutional law of abortion, now that's a phrase right there that I think would amaze the founding, the framers of our constitution, but leave that aside. What would the constitutional law of abortion be if the number of months involved in the gestation of a human infant were a prime number? say, 11 or 13, couldn't have trimesters. Mm -hmm. Where did we decide that because 9 is divisible by 3, there should be different constitutional imperatives for each of the three segments? It makes no sense whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, people can... People who say Roe v. Wade is an atrocity and people think Roe v. Wade is a great triumph for uh, the human condition, can all ag- can agree, people in both camps, that it's god-awful constitutional law. John Hart Eli, who was pro-choice, said so. He was a great professor of, of law, I believe, at Yale. Uh, Ruth Brady Ginsburg had her doubts about the way they did it constitutionally, which is why the... Uh, argument coming up in the Mississippi case be argued this fall and decided by next June in the middle of a president uh, of the uh, uh, the uh, midterm elections is going to be momentous but of course all the focus right now is on the Texas law which creates this um, I, I think odd I would welcome to hear what you think private right of action um, yeah. in order to explore this and you know go after doctors and take it to the court yeah. I these are called you, private attorney general laws and I know that some conservatives impatient with uh, making progress against Roe v. Wade and not recognizing that patience is required of constitutional government and the rule of law. Uh, Impatient conservatives say, well, good, we'll just empower citizens with a bounty of $10,000 to go out and sue people. Someone has to say and has said to the conservatives, wait a minute, just wait until California says, we're going to have a private action against hate speech. We'll give you ten thousand dollars to drag people into court. Or NRA for members sure. who might possess weapons that exactly. are on the books. So it's it's not it's really not. I'm all for private enterprise, but I'm not for for outsourcing this kind of law. Yeah, but it sounds like you do welcome the court hearing the Mississippi Absolutely. case. Absolutely. Yes. Viability is going to change. Has changed. Mm-hmm. But again, we have to confront the fact. That this is what makes this an intractable problem. Pro-choice people say that one person's involved, the woman. Pro-life people say there are two individuals involved. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to argue that again. Now, you really think it's an intractable problem? There couldn't be progress made on making the argument about viability with all we know about science now post-1973 yep. and how preemie children can survive outside the woman. Do you, you think it's truly Not intractable? Not only can they survive outside the woman, the fact is interuterine medicine now. Yeah can do wonders for pre-born children. So it, it, I'm not saying you can't split the difference. Some, some people on the, on the right-to-life side say you can't split the difference. From the moment of conception on, uh, there is a distinctly unique creature who, absent violence or accident of nature, is going to become a person. Mm-hmm. Got that. And that's true. That's not medieval theology. That's high school biology. But... Uh, if, you, if we had abortion laws much more like those in Europe, for example, which are, I mean, Europe 
is hardly a theocracy these days. Uh, if we had, say, a limit on abortion of 20 weeks, that'd be 95% of abortions would still occur and the temperature would go down. Mm. So you're saying it would be worth it to split the difference? Or maybe, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Basically, I'm for splitting differences, yeah. Mm. And of course, this will all be decided by the court. Um, and you, know, I, you know who's terrified that Roe v. Wade might be overturned? There are about 8,000 state legislators in this country, a lot of whom say, we want to overturn Roe v. Wade, but in their heart of hearts are saying, oh, spare me that. A lot of Americans think, if you overturn Roe v. Wade, suddenly abortion is illegal. It's not true. All of overturning Roe v. Wade is, would do is establish the status quo ante Roe v. Wade and reestablish abortion as a subject regulable by state law. And you'd have vast differences. You'd have one abortion regime in Louisiana and one in New York, and they'd bear no resemblance to one another. Yeah. I know a lot of people on the left who are in favor of, you know, all of the above abortion rights, um, if you want to put it that way, are are looking forward to this court fight because they believe it will energize uh, suburban women going into the 2022 elections. And this is, you know, another debate. Uh, arguments are going to be made on this, but I think it's going to turn into a fight um, given how emotional this issue is. Yeah, people are emotional about peanut butter these days. They're, they're <laughs> emotional about everything, and you can imagine what it's going to be like. Yeah. And June 2022. That's, that'll be the date. Yeah. Um, you have a lot of faith in the court system. I have a lot of faith in them because I think they're behaving well, and I have minimal faith in the other two branches of government at this yeah. point. Okay, so it's the, sort of a ranked choice thing? Sure. <laughs> it is, exactly. My view is that if we're going to have limited government, it depends on the supervision of democracy by the judiciary. Congress will not, A, limit itself, and it will not stop violating the non-delegation doctrine, which the court flinches from enforcing, but should, which says, as John Locke said, legislatures can make laws they cannot make other legislators. So the Congress ought to stop delegating essentially legislative powers to executive agencies such as, to take two examples not quite at random, the power to have an eviction moratorium for the Centers for Disease Control or the power of OSHA, Occupational Health and, uh, health and Safety, Safety and Health Administration, uh, to impose mandates on private sector employees. Mm-hmm. What do you think, I mean, obviously, the, as you referenced, the Supreme Court overturned the eviction ban, which was went on for far outside of emergency powers and the masking issue also could be a judicial question but what do you think are the most important decisions that have impact american life in in the modern time um you know i remember john roberts being reluctant to overturn obamacare and sort of going to this like technicality on the tax mandate um i i I find it hard to have a lot of faith in what's coming and that they will be a counter to many things although you know um, well, conservatives did get judges out of the Trump administration, the, and Brett Kavanaugh is proving... The most important of modern times, depends on what you can consider modern, but is uh, Brown v. Board of Education, which gave the court an enormous prestige infusion mm. because it went against public opinion, and everyone knew it. And not just public opinion in the South. 
How many Americans remember that Brown v. Board of Education was against the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas? This was a northern segregation story. And the fact is that courts exist to stand against majorities. Hmm. Can I give you my little central Illinois spiel? I'm from central Illinois. Please. As a Michigander, I like someone that's also around the Midwest. Lincoln country. Yeah. Champaign County Courthouse... Typical Midwestern scene, a square, big, red sandstone courthouse. According to local lore, Lincoln, a very prosperous, traveling railroad lawyer, was in the Champaign County Courthouse when he learned that Stephen A. Douglas, the Illinois senator, had succeeded in passing through the Senate the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Kansas-Nebraska Act said, we're going to solve a problem, this vexing question of should slavery be extended into the territories. His answer was popular sovereignty. Well, vote it up or vote it down. He said, matter indifference, moral indifference, whether it's voted up or voted down, the important thing is to vote because America is about majority rule. Mm. Lincoln's ascent to greatness began with his recoil against that doctrine. He said, no, America is not about a process, majority rule, it's about a condition, liberty. And that's where courts come in. Courts exist to say... Majority rule is all very well. Majority rule should have a broad sweep, but not a limitless sweep. And there's certain things we do not put to a vote. For example, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. Congress shall make no law, even if everyone wants it. Can't do it. Sorry. Some people call this the counter-majoritarian dilemma. I don't see any dilemma in it. That's why you have a constitution, is to say certain things can't be done. How much time do you spend reading history? A lot. Yeah. Counting as reading uh, recorded books, I get up every morning at 5.20. By okay. 5.21... By choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. By, I like mornings, by, too. By 5.21, <laughs> I'm listening to an audible book and uh, shave and have breakfast and commute to work, uh, walk to lunch, commute home, two and a half to three hours a day of otherwise wasted time. I'm listening to books most often on history. Hmm. You can tell, of course, by reading your columns by how much, how many facts are just shoved into every sentence. How much time do you think you spend reading as opposed to writing? I imagine it's it's enormous on that's one a, side a, of the ledger. That's a good question. Someone said, "What do you do? Are you a writer?" I said, "No, I'm a reader." Yeah. The, when I'm done reading, I write, but m- mostly you have to read. Henry Kissinger uh, once said that when you come to Washington, you start running down your intellectual capital because you don't have time to replenish it. <laughs> Which might be true if you're Henry Kissinger. <laughs> but uh, uh, my friend Moynihan, who I once rather rudely said wrote more books while in the Senate than most of his colleagues read, uh, proved that wasn't so. I mean, Pat kept writing and producing serious books. Mm. But the trick in life in Washington, really everywhere, but particularly here, is to keep your intellectual capital restocked. Mm. Well, since this is book TV, what what books have impacted you the most? Oh gosh, I, uh, I just I mean, uh, I mean recently. I mean, you read so many. There's just, probably some that pop up in recent memory that said, "Oh, that gave me that idea," and you yeah, went down a rabbit I, hole. I just read a biography of John C. Calhoun. Okay. Uh, very bright man, very bad man. Oh yeah, bright <laughs> yeah. and bad. That's a bad combination. That's usually. a very bad combination, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, he was a very uh, uh, sinewy mind, good thinker. In a terrible cause. 
Yeah. But uh, white supremacy. Yeah. Speaking of the bad causes, um, this column that you wrote in 2018 about visiting the Holocaust um, Museum here in Washington, another place you can go mm-hmm. to learn. It's hard to go there to learn about mm-hmm. it. Um, obviously, you went. And the column is called Into Eternity Velma. And it's, you tell the story. You're going to have to refresh me. Yes. Um, I, I can't read from it because it's, um, I'll probably cry a little bit, but it's about a woman who um, was taken to the camps and um, her son was taken. She chose to yeah. go with him. Yes, the Holocaust Museum had sent to it from someone who discovered it far away uh, some photographs and letters about a woman who I believe she was from Czechoslovakia. That's correct. correct. And uh, Very good memory. was sent to a, a, a death camp, not just a concentration camp, but a death camp. And it's, um, I, I've written a lot about the Holocaust, including the Holocaust Museum in, on the tip of Manhattan, because as Primo Levi, an Italian survivor of Auschwitz, said, it happened once, it can happen again. End of mm-hmm. reason for writing about the Holocaust. That uh, nothing is unthinkable. Nothing. The thing that was, is also striking about it is that you don't write about it to be sad or scare people. You have written after you include this incredibly moving letter. The museum presents human nature's noblest as well as its vilest manifestations. It has received 43 million visitors, 90% who are non-Jewish. And so I, that's just this, a statistic that you found to put with the story that yeah. makes you think as horrible as this was, we are learning about this, and then you dug out the good of it, that this is man's noblest virtue in being able to do this, and now we're telling yeah. about it and sharing and working through it. When they first decided to build the Holocaust Museum right next to the mall in Washington... Which it would be controversial. I wasn't it was a, controversial, and these are not bad people criticizing this. Mm-hmm. But they said, why? What's the point? What's this got to do with American history? And I wrote a column saying, look, um, the mall with its wonderful clean geography and monuments to Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln is a tribute to the, the bright light of American life, the reasonableness of American experience. It is therefore all the more important that this uh, American nation, itself a product of the Enlightenment, and the confidence that the Enlightenment thinkers of the late 18th century had, it's important that we have a black sun into which to stare. Mm. And that's the Holocaust Museum. Mm. It was because of that that uh, they asked, that column that I was asked to go with the delegation that went to Poland to Auschwitz, Madonnach, and Treblinka death camps to get uh, artifacts. Mm. What was that like? It was sobering. Yeah. I got off a helicopter. I took my, I think he was then 12-year-old son. We got off the Polish helicopter that took us to Treblinka. And my son looked down and said... Did you ever flinch about taking your 12-year-old son? No, no, he's time to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, And he looked down and said, Dad, there's a bone. And I said, David, sorry, this was Jeff. I said, Jeff, don't, uh, don't let your imagination run away with you and the guide said that was either a man's rib or man's uh, finger or a child's rib the sandy soil of that part of Poland it just keeps sifting up the remains 
Did your son, do, do you talk about it with your son quite a bit after? I mean, I'm asking sure. out the personal interest. Yeah. My um, children, their school, they take a sixth grade field trip to the Holocaust Museum. And it's, it's kind of something I'm That's, dreading, but I know they need to know yeah, about. And I think a lot of people ha- have trouble yeah. talking about this because it is so difficult. I went to the uh, Holocaust Museum in New York. And one of their exhibits in a glass case is a red shoe, high-heeled shoe that a woman put on when she was taken to the train. And I began the column by saying, where did she think she was going? Mm. With a red pump. To try and capture the reality of what these people went through is, is a, a test. Yeah. I said something, something to me the other day. The people who lived in the past didn't know they were living in the past. Yeah, exactly. And we need to always think about that. And um, that the past is another country. As yes. Has said. Yes. Um, which, you know, the f- words like authoritarianism and fascism are thrown out a lot yeah. um, when it comes to our modern political culture. How do you feel about that? Do you think people have an understanding of those words? Are they cheapened? Are they necessary? Should they be used? Uh, they should be used when they're opposite, but they rarely are. Donald Trump's not a fascist. He's not complicated enough to be a fascist. Fascism had an actual intellectual pedigree, not that Garin and Goebbels were intellectuals, although Goebbels fancied he was, I think he had a PhD. Uh, but fascism had a doctrine, had a worldview. Uh, it had a, a sort of biological theory of the world, that there is strife is inherent in races. We don't have that in this country. We have authoritarian temptations. We have uh, autocratic pretensions. Fascism we have not had. Um, I notice in your writings you, you make that argument. I, I think it's probably correct, although we should be worried. Um, but you come back to this belief that any authoritarian impulses here in America would be tempered by the courts. And what makes you so confident about that. Because they behaved well in the past, and even when they made mistakes, they correct them. Karamatsu. You know, people say, gee, the American people are not, they're too squeamish to face their difficult past. I was recently spent three weeks on Bainbridge Island uh, across Puget Sound from Seattle. And I'm driving around the road, and there's a little sign that said, Japanese Exclusion Memorial. It hmm. turns out that after Roosevelt, President Franklin Roosevelt, signed the order to allow the military to uproot Japanese, two-thirds of them American citizens, half of them women and children, and move them away from the West Coast. The first ones to leave were from Bainbridge Island. Mm. And Bainbridge Island said, well, we're going to face that fact, we're going to talk about it, and we're going to have a memorial. The Supreme Court in the Karamatsu decision in 1944 affirmed that use of executive power by Franklin Roosevelt. 1983, the Supreme Court repudiated the decision, said we were wrong. In 1988, I believe it was, Congress uh, voted uh, reparations for this injury. Americans are, are good at this. Your question was about the courts. Nothing is certain. But the courts have a very good record on protecting speech. Not so good in protect, on 
protecting the constitutional equilibrium that Madison gave us between the branches of government. But if the courts don't do it, no one will. I guess I'd like you to, in this, you know, scale of history, in order to give us some perspective, because people have been so worried um, about what happened, particularly on January 6th, when you saw a violent Mm -hmm. mob deliberately seek out to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power, official proceedings. Um, There's court cases winding through for those individuals. Um, But I'm I'm not sure that's something the court can solve or will solve if it's such an intractable political problem. Well, it... it the court shouldn't solve problems. The court should apply the law and hold the law up against the Constitution. A very short walk from where we're sitting at the base of Capitol Hill. They have now put up fences. Again. They put up fences because... You don't think that's of, necessary? I think it's an obscenity. It makes the United States look like a banana republic worried about arrest of tank regiment at the edge of town. It's nonsense. The police can surely control a crowd, if not get better police. But the idea that we have to take the United States Capitol, the greatest secular building in daily use in the world, and the very symbol at the epicenter of American democracy, and protect it from whom? From a a rabble? No. What do you make of... um the Lafayette Square incident that happened in January of 2020 where the president cleared the square to walk through should, I mean, it seemed sort of different types of problems, but there is, and especially in D.C.'s post-9-11, um, to throw up the walls, to put up the barriers at every possible opportunity um, when these things come to the front. Well, the president uh, used Lafayette Square as, an, as, a, as a prop with the Bible, which he held upside down, outside St. John's Church, the so-called Church of Presidents, right across from the White House. And he brought along uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, who understandably felt ill-used and should not have let himself be put in that position. Again, don't get me back on presidents, uh, but it's an example of, of the performative aspect of our politics that is uh, degrading politics. The Senate is today almost entirely a performative outfit, mm. people making gestures. You mentioned that. And that's, see, the courts are different. Courts have to decide, and they have to give reasons. They have to write opinions and concurrences mm-hmm. and dissents, which is why they are they're really where we do political philosophy in this country. People say, gee, we don't have... Uh, Locke's second treatise on government, and we don't have Hobbes' Leviathan. And I say, A, we do, because the Federalist Papers ranks with them. But B, we do constitutional lawyers, and constitutional argument is constantly political philosophy about the nature of freedom, freedom as opposed to and as intention with equality. We do it all the time. Mm. So you'd be against putting the cameras in the Supreme Court, I assume? I'm not, I'm not so sure. I, I don't, I, we just, we've seen recently that uh, cameras do not, I want to put this politely, do not bring out the best in congressional committees. I do think that uh, the justices would behave. Mm. Well, I'd be content if they just made the radio transcripts available in a more timely fashion. And exactly. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you went abroad with your son. I imagine your writing has taken you many places. 
What are the most memorable trips? Uh, trip to Israel was quite good. Uh, everyone ought to go and see how small it was. Oh, yeah. I've never been. The Latrun salient, about which you can drive across in 30 minutes, oh, and yeah? tanks could get across in 30 minutes. Uh, I think that's probably the, the most memorable. Mm. I remember going to the Soviet Union, and what struck me was interesting. I said, what is weird about this place? Absence of advertising. Really? Yeah. You know, I think it was Oscar Wilde when he saw Times Square said it would be beautiful if you couldn't read. Uh, <laughs> but you look at it and you say, well, there's no advertising because there's no private appetites. Mm. You weren't supposed to be consumers. You weren't supposed to be persuading people. And I said, I, I like advertising. <laughs> Give me a Coke sign and Bud Light and all that stuff. Well, you're in the business of persuading people in some respect. Trying, yes. Um, not, not what, <laughs> what comp do you think did persuade people the most? Where do, you, where do you think people said you maybe changed minds in a way that surprised you? I'll tell you the one that didn't. Okay. It's, I, I, I've, I'm approaching 6,000 columns. There's one in this book that maybe stirred more people to anger. It yeah, well, it's, it's my Jeremiah against denim. <laughs> Okay. Well, well it's a, this, this will give me a, a chance to, sh- to illustrate how I think I, you can illustrate large things from small things. I just got tired. You go down an airport concourse, and there's a father in his late 30s and his 10-year-old son, and they're dressed exactly alike. Running shoes, blue jeans, T-shirt. And okay. if mom's there, she's wearing blue jeans. And I said, you know, there was a time when different dress signaled different stages of life that we grew up. (laughs) Now, what's this got to do with larger themes? This. Somewhere in the last 20 or 30 years, the noun parent became a verb. Now okay, we, I believe it is an action. Yes. Now we parent, <laughs> and parenting okay. is important. And, and this encouraged the belief in uh, parental perfectionism, mm. that if you do it right, it's like calculus. You think very that's a new company. thing? No, well, I do, actually. I think it's, yes. Okay. People weren't well, always this neurotic? <laughs> no, they weren't. I, mean, when I want I, to go back. When I was 10 years old, my mother would open the back door, and I'd go out on a summer day and maybe come back for lunch, probably for dinner. But they didn't care. I just was called what's now called free-range parenting. And it was called being a kid back in those days. And you were free to fail and cope with your failures. That was called growing up, learning how to cope with failure. Today, with helicopter parents hovering over their children, their bubble-wrapped children, protected from injury, not just to their little shins and knees and elbows, but injury to their psyches, They wind up being risk-averse. And guess what happens when they go to college? They say, direct me to the safe space. I want freedom from speech. And I want the bias response team to run around and capture the microaggressors. Mm. That's where these, these brittle young people on campuses come from. They come from parents who didn't let them go out and skin their knees. Mm. You obviously 
have a great interest in academia, but I guess why should we care so much what happens on college campuses? Isn't this because people just experimenting on, with ideas? Because what happens on campus doesn't stay on campus. It leaks out into the larger culture. And because what is happening to campuses matters very much. It took 800 years of passage through ecclesiastical and political thickets to evolve the great universities that are the greatest ornaments of Western civilization. And you can kick that away in a generation or two. We're doing that now. Where in the name of diversity, very Orwellian, in the name of diversity, we're seeing enforced conformity. How, how so? How so? Where do you, how do you see that? We have uh, young people who attest that they're reluctant to speak their minds on college campuses. We have speech codes that are being struck down in many cases, but they still proliferate. We have speech zones. James Madison turned the United States, turned the North American continent into a free speech zone. Mm. Go to some of these, remember, I don't want to pick on Texas Tech, but at one point Texas Tech had a gazebo. 20,000 or so students had a gazebo was the free speech zone. You can't make this stuff up. Did you know that Brandeis University wants trigger warnings on trigger warnings? No. Yes, because the phrase trigger warning, A, the word warning makes people unhappy and sad and, and nervous and triggers. Well, you know what they make people think of. So what should be done? I mean, I've talked to some college students and, you know, what they come to me with is this fear of being canceled. That if I do have some kind of idea or I write the wrong thing, and I post it on Facebook or something, it could come back to bite me. I could lose a scholarship. I could do this. And so there is this kind of thing that's happening where people are afraid to speak. And I don't know. I, yeah. I don't have the right advice for them. Speak anyway. Yeah. Find some, find some friends and, and fight back. Write a check to FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. A terrific, litigious, scrappy group of people who are, they rank University now, green light for good, amber light for problematic, red Whose light. Whose rankings do you like? There's so many college rankings. I know FIRE is a wonderful organization that supports students both on the left and the right yeah. on free speech Absolutely. issues. Um, but what, who's doing it right? Who, who, uh, which colleges? Yes. University or maybe Sh programs University, within colleges. I'll give you two. University of Chicago with the University of Chicago statement that a number of universities have adopted. Uh, as usual, Purdue University under Mitch Daniels, mm. the president we should have had. Anyway, that would have been a different world. But he's a great president of, Uni of Purdue University has made this absolutely clear. Free speech. Madison lives in Terre Haute in, in West Lafayette or wherever it is. Okay. So I imagine, you know, all of your column writing gives you opportunity to have so many conversations and people asking you to write things. Um, I believe I might have been on one side of that from people in the cruise office once upon a time. Um, how, how, do you, how do you choose when you have all this incoming information? I mean, obviously the history is a wonderful resource, um, but picking the most important thing to write every day, there's so many choices. That's, that, you see, that's unusual for you to say. Most people say, gee, how do you come up with things oh. to write about? That's the most commonly asked questions of a columnist. And it's the question I, when I began as a columnist, asked my friend Bill Buckley. Yeah. He said, how do you come up with things to write about? He said, the world irritates me three times a week. <laughs> well, I'd say the world 
irritates me, amuses me, piques my curiosity. Uh, the world is just littered with things to write about. It was said of Napoleon that he could not look at a landscape without seeing a battlefield. Huh. If you're a columnist, you ought to be able to, you can't look at the world without seeing column topics. Yeah. They just come at you. Huh. What do you think is the difference between writing about politics and speaking about it? Because people recognize you, obviously, all the time, but there are completely different things even though they're, they're so closely related. Well, writing is um, demanding. And writing columns is particularly so because they're short. Uh, I adhere fairly strictly to 750-word limit, which means you have to be concise and you have to be elliptical and you have to intimate certain things. You have to assume certain things. Most Americans don't read newspapers. A majority of the minority who do read newspapers don't read columns. That's a good thing if you're a columnist. <laughs> and here's why. It means you've got a self-selected audience that is definitionally intellectually upscale. There are people who come to the utterly optional business of reading a column because they're interested. And they're interested because they've got a stock of knowledge. And it's a great audience. You don't have to talk down to them. You shouldn't talk down to them because they came to you knowing what they were going to get. Well, one final question, because I know uh, C-SPAN book listeners are so interested in other things to read. I've asked you about the history, but what are the other things, other columnists you read to keep your mind active? And what do you watch? I, I don't even know if you watch much television, but what else, what else is going into the mind of George Will on a daily basis? Mostly it's reading. Uh, Chuck Blaine, wonderful columnist, uh, Ruth Marcus from colleagues at the Washington Post. Uh, Holman Jenkins, Baker, Galston, others in the Wall Street Journal. There's an awful lot of talented writing out there. And I read the aggregators, Real Clear Politics, Real Clear Policy, Real Clear World, Real Clear Defense, Real Clear uh, Volick Conspiracy. Tremendous amount of good writing today. That's great. Well, thank you. This has been a pleasure, and I hope everyone gets the book at their bookstores. It's available everywhere. Good. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. Be sure to check out our Lectures in History podcast. This week, author Edward Ball discusses his books, Slaves in the Family and Life of a Klansman, a Family History in White Supremacy. Find it and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out our new app, C-SPAN Now. You can watch live or on demand C-SPAN's complete coverage of the U.S. House and Senate, congressional hearings, White House events, the courts, campaigns, and more from the world of politics. Find it in the App Store or on Google Play.